Hello, my name is Alex Rutkeen. I'm a barrister at Thurpin and Essex Chambers specialising in mental capacity law. And in the context of the very recent CQC report looking at DNA CPR decision making during the pandemic, I want to share with you some slides and do a short presentation on how to get the law in this area right. So to that extent or to that end, here are the slides and off we go. And you'll see from the opening slide, I'm really keen on placing do not attempt CPR decisions within a broader context of advanced care planning. It's, that's really a vital message I want to get across. So let's just be clear what we're talking about here. We're talking about decisions by a doctor or more than one doctor that CPR is not gonna work. So in other words, well, either it's not gonna work, so it's gonna be futile. So in other words, it simply wouldn't restart the heart. It wouldn't restart independent circulation. So a decision in advance that that might be the case or that it's not in the interests of the person. So it's people sitting down and making a sensible, in principle, a very sensible decision in advance. Would this be a good idea? And I think it's important just to remember that CPR can be an intervention which is incredibly painful, incredibly difficult. It might well result in, for instance, broken ribs. It's not if you've seen Casualty or you've seen American TV shows, it's not just a question of an instant thing which gets the person up and going again in all circumstances. So it's a medical intervention which needs to be approached with care. But in many circumstances, it would be completely the right thing to do. And so it's important to think through in advance, would it work? Would it be in, in the interest of the person? Critically, that second bullet point is so important, I can't emphasise enough. A decision by the clinicians in advance that CPR either wouldn't work or wouldn't be in the interests of the person. So a DNA CPR decision or notice or order or recommendation, you see different language used, isn't binding on the person who's actually face to face with the patient in circumstances where, for instance, they've gone into cardiac arrest. But of course, it's very likely to play quite a significant part or a very significant part in their decision at that point which is why the courts have made clear that you need to involve the person in the thinking process about whether or not CPR should be attempted. So involve the person in advance when there's the discussion about whether or not a DNA, DNA CPR recommendation or notice should be placed in, in the uh, person's records. That's what the case of Tracy said. The Court of Appeal in Tracy said, well, there is an exception to that, there's a limited exception to that, which is you don't need to tell the person if the very process of telling the person that you're going to put a DNA CPR recommendation in their records is going to cause them harm. It's more than just distress, it's actual harm. So it's a limited exception. Then that fourth bullet point is really important. You can't demand CPR. I couldn't demand CPR off a clinician from a clinician if a clinician didn't think it was the right thing to do, not clinically appropriate or futile. And so, but if a clinician thinks that that is the case, there's an obligation to tell the patient that that's the decision. What the patient could then do is ask for a second opinion, but the Court of Appeal made clear that it has been a multidisciplinary consideration of whether CPR would be futile. So it's not just one doctor's uh, consideration. That team isn't actually obliged to arrange for a further opinion. 
And then critically, in terms of securing the rights of individuals where we're thinking about advanced decision making here or advanced care planning here, if the person doesn't have capacity to participate in the discussion, so where either the doctors are telling the patient that we don't think that CPR would be the right thing to do here, or the doctor saying actually CPR is just simply futile, so it's simply not on the table. The person doesn't have capacity to participate in that discussion. The courts have made clear that in principle, you need to be involving people appropriately interested in their welfare. For instance, family members. That's the case of Carl Winspear. I say in principle because there might be some limited circumstances under which it simply isn't actually possible to have that discussion. But those are going to be very limited circumstances. And one would always need to be explaining, well, it wasn't actually practicable to find the family member or the person who would be most interested, the people interested in their welfare to consult before we place this recommendation in the person's records. And can I emphasize if that was a situation, that would be a situation where you would then need to be re-evaluating the DNA CPR recommendation as soon as possible after being able to find and have a consultation with people interested in their welfare. So I flagged the CQC report. I just want to frame some of the, what I'm saying now by just reference to what people have been talking about. The CQC report, 18th of March, 2021, gives some really sobering evidence about how do not attempt CPR notice decision-making has been, was implemented during the pandemic. It also, I would just say, it did emphasize how thinking about DNA CPR in advance or thinking about CPR decisions in advance is really important on an individualized basis. So it absolutely wasn't saying, do not ever think about this. It in fact saying the direct opposite of that. But what it was saying is there needs to be ways in which to ensure this is properly individualized there's proper record keeping. And they pointed out some really important governance issues in terms of, for instance, national consistency. That second link there, the NHS recently published guidance about do not attempt CPR uh, decisions on the NHS website, talking about, again, personalized, talking about, again, how decisions are made. And then that blank, that text there, comes from that bottom bit there, from the letter from the NHS National Medical Director and others dated the 4th of March, in particular focused on people who've got autism or learning disability, because they are a group of people where there has been a legitimately a very real concern that blanket policies might have been made, might have been put in place. Um, and obviously that's completely inappropriate. One could never have a blanket policy uh, in this zone. It's always got to be individualized. And also, as, the, uh, as is made clear there, you could never have a decision made not to attempt CPR, not to recommend that CPR is attempted simply because a person has a learning disability or autism or both. That's just, it's just logically incoherent and just wrong, it's unlawful. So what if you've got a learning disability or you're autistic? It's only if there are other things going on, which mean that either CPR simply wouldn't work in your case, or actually it wouldn't be in your interests. So that's to frame everything. So let's get this all right. If the person currently has capacity to make decisions about what they want, or to participate in discussions with doctors about what doctors are going to recommend, then, if the person themselves wants to make their own decisions, 
They could, for instance, make an advanced decision to refuse treatment. I'm going to come back to that. They could make an advanced statement about what they would like, not just what they wouldn't like. Or they could appoint an attorney, a lasting power of attorney for health and welfare, specific criteria that which need to be fulfilled to enable an attorney to make decisions about life-sustaining treatment. If the person currently doesn't have capacity to make decisions for themselves or to participate in the formulation of recommendations, then again, we're thinking about identification of what's important to that person. And that's that Carl Winspear case. What should have been happening there was the identification of Carl's wishes, feelings, beliefs, and values about whether or not it would be right to attend CPR. So I said I'd talk a little bit more about advanced decisions to refuse treatment, and there are some very specific criteria which need to be satisfied in England and Wales if you're going to make an advanced decision about life-sustaining treatment. And you can only make this if you're over 18. So it's got to be written, it's got to be signed, it's got to be witnessed, and it's got to acknowledge it's going to apply to the treatment or treatments, even if your life is at risk. And as I say that, they're powerful but really brittle instruments. If you make one and it's valid and applicable, it's exactly as if you are standing there saying, do not treat. So it's very powerful, but it's very brittle because there might, for instance, in some circumstances, be doubt about whether or not you had capacity to make it. If there could ever be doubt about whether you had capacity to make it, my very strong advice, frankly, is to get confirmation from somebody at the time you make it that they're happy that, or that they don't have any reason to doubt your capacity to make it. But also there might be doubts about whether it really actually applies. Did you really have this treatment in mind? So what I always say is really important in terms of advanced decisions, have a statement about your values or your priorities. So that if for some reason it doesn't specifically apply to the treatment, then people making decisions about what's in your, what are in your interests can be guided by what's important to you. And then always think about an attorney who might be able to make the decisions for you because they could actually respond to the situation as arises. And then how is anyone going to know about them? Some people want to carry a card saying I've got an advanced decision, but one of the problems is that we just don't have a national registry in England or indeed a registry in Wales to make it clear whether or not people have got ADRTs. I'm just flagging there a template at mydecisions.org.uk. That's a template form that you could go through if you're thinking about making an advanced decision. And as I say, this future proofing if where capacity is intact. Some people get very cross at the idea of the suggestion that you need to have confirmation at the time that I've got you've got capacity to make an advanced decision because people say, well, there's a presumption of capacity. Why should I have to, as it were, future proof? Can I just say from long and very bitter experience, you are storing up trouble if there might be a reason to doubt later that you had capacity to make it. And that E case you can find on our Chambers website. If you look up on our case or database E and anorexia, you will see why I'm saying that. And then if you're a medical practitioner and there is a question about whether an ADRT might be relevant, please never ever rely on secondhand, secondhand information. That's that Rushton case. Hearsay about whether or not the contents of, of Mrs. Rushton's ADRT led to actually the wrong decision being made and treatment started in circumstances. It's very clear she didn't want them. So advanced statements within the Mental Capacity Act are things 
which either are about care and treatment other than medical treatment, because ADRTs are very specifically about medical treatment. They, they, the advanced statements could be about other things, or it could be a request for something. I can't demand a specific treatment if the doctors don't think it's appropriate, but I can make it clear what I would like. And again, this idea, this importance of making it clear what's important to you. And then I just flat, there's no need for an advanced statement to be written. It could be in video form, it could be in audio form. And sometimes, especially if you, it, it's just a very good way of capturing somebody, especially if someone isn't very good at writing things down, but they've got a very vivid way of portraying themselves. Just because somebody doesn't have capacity to participate in advanced care planning doesn't mean it shouldn't be done. And actually, I think in some circumstances, it's almost more important. But it's more because it means that people have the ability in the cold light of day or the calm of day to sit down and think what might be the right thing to do here to avoid, for instance, that 3 a.m. best interest decision about resuscitation a real panic decision where people aren't guided by sensible information. But it's super important, as I say, to emphasize that this kind of advanced care planning, where the person doesn't have capacity fully to participate, has to be done by gathering as much information from everybody, which might well include the person themselves, just because a person doesn't have capacity to participate in the making of recommendations, doesn't mean they might not be able to express feelings. And others are going to be able to, be able to be shedding light on this. For instance, attorneys or deputies or family members. Can I just flag, I don't think, it's, it's a complex area, I think it uh, uh, strictly analysed, an attorney couldn't say on someone's behalf that they would refuse CPR in advance. I don't think an attorney's got that power if you actually read the Mental Capacity Act properly. But what an attorney could definitely do is make very clear that they don't think for the reasons that they're explaining, they don't think that, for instance, CPR would be in the person's best interests. And that would then, of course, feature very heavily in any recommendation which was going to be made about CPR, say. And one of the things I would really want to emphasize, and I'm just going to use respect here as an example, other examples are available, but I will use respect partly because I've been quite heavily involved for, for some years with it, is that we fetishize CPR. We fetishize CPR as a society partly because we've seen lots of TV shows where CPR is used. But there's a real problem actually if you focus too much on CPR because sometimes you can then lose sight of actually the bigger picture. There might be other things, other interventions, which are more important to think about, which might be more important for the person. And also, if you don't have a whole picture approach, you can then potentially run into that real problem, which is someone thinks there's a DNA CPR notice on the person's uh, records, which means they shouldn't attempt any other kind of intervention, which might secure the person's life. That would be completely and utterly wrong. There might be circumstances where escalating treatment and not providing further interventions, there might be appropriate for that to be the case. But that needs to be thought across the piece. Never ever go, well, there's a DNA CPR notice in place, therefore I'm not going to attempt anything else. That is, is clearly wrong. 
So one way in which people have tried to make sure that things are seen across the piece is through this RESPECT project, Recommended Summary Plan for Emergency Care and Treatment. And this is a way in which people can look across the piece and say, process to create and keep under review, personalised recommendations for clinical care and a future emergency. That could be completed at a time when a person's got capacity to participate in the process. Again, it could also be completed where the person doesn't have capacity to participate in the process with all the information being gained about their wishes and feelings from others. And so it's a relatively short document, but it's a relatively short document which reflects a detailed series of discussions which need to take place. And actually the CQC report on do not attempt CPR decision making highlights how in the, those areas where respect is used, it takes sometimes longer to think about than for instance, just thinking about DNA CPR. Well, good, it takes longer, but it's a more holistic picture. It's been rolled out and implemented in different sites. It's as it were meant to be demand-led. If you want to know, look more, look at that website there. But can I just emphasize respect just as much as for instance, individuals' decisions about do not attempt CPR, it's got to be individualized. Central message, always advanced care planning to be done with people, not to people. And then here are some resources here. There are lots of other Shadonars which you can find on my website there, mentalcapacity.org.uk, the fourth bullet point. Um, that top bullet point there, that's our Chambers website, which has got lots of resources, including, for instance, the case law database, uh, where you could find the e-case talking about anorexia or Rushton talking about uh, advanced decisions, refused treatment, and other guides to, for instance, assessing capacity. So thank you very much indeed for watching.